Here we go. We got a, a new new book. I I don't know why people get excited about doing something different. It it's all the same thing, right? <laughs> it's like we're we're just teaching the Bible up here and uh people always go, Great message. I'm like, I'm just reading the word. But the truth of the matter is, uh we spent two years going through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just doing the whole public ministry of Jesus. And then when we went into the book of Acts and what happened after Acts, obviously the Holy Spirit came upon the church and the church began. The, the church, the, there, there's like, this is the visible church. Like you can see the church, right? But then there's the invisible church, which is like all those people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's like everybody that believes in Jesus. And that all came to existence after the cross that the Holy Spirit came and descended upon them and they received power. They received power to become witnesses in all Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so now we've gone through this history, this history with Paul and Peter and all their writings and we get to this First John. We are not done with Paul's writings. We still have to cover Second Timothy and I think a couple others. But uh, we're getting close to finishing up the whole New Testament books. I won't touch Revelation. I'm just not going to go there. Uh, and there's a reason for that. I'll, I can tell you later. But, so what we've done is we've always included the, the history of what's going on. So back up to Titus where we were. Paul is in Macedonia, which he's writing this letter to Titus because Titus is freaking out uh, on, on the island of Crete. So let me, let me take you here. The, Macedonia is this area that is like right in here, right in here. Uh, and then you've got over here the churches that are Galatia and Ephesus. And uh, so... Paul is somewhere up here in Upper Macedonia when he's writing to Titus down here in Crete, the island. And so he actually sends Apollos and Zenos to like take this letter to Crete and deliver it to Titus. And he says at this time, I'm going to send, I'm going to go spend the winter in Nicopolis. Nicopolis is be on the other side of Greece right here. And uh let, let me go to the next map, which is like the current map. You can, th- this is like modern-day modern day world Google Maps. What you were looking at was like the Bible time maps. But you can see exactly where Paul is in Nicopolis right here. This is it. The island of Crete is like right here. And so he sends them to take the letter. He's going to Nicopolis, and he asks for Titus to come be with him in Nicopolis. He's like... I'm going to I'm going to leave uh, to Caicus with you in Crete, and he's going to take over. But I want you to come to me in Nicopolis and hang out with me for the winter. And when the winter is over, Paul and Titus they head off to Corinth. Corinth is like uh, right up in this area in Greece, and they head up to Corinth and they check on the church there. Now you go, well, how do you know all this? It's because literally Paul says what he's doing through his letters. Like it doesn't sit there and have the history book of what Paul 
has done, but you can go back to his letters to Timothy, his letters to the churches and everything else, and you can piece all this together, the passages of Scripture. And then they head for Ephesus, and again, Ephesus is up here on the, uh, in this area right here, so they're going to go across the Mediterranean Sea. And they head to Ephesus, and they ask Erastus, Erastus to join them. Erastus, however, he can't go, and he stays in Corinth, right over here. We know all that from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. It says Erastus has remained at Corinth. Then all of a sudden, Paul gets imprisoned. Nero is coming to the end of his reign as the Roman emperor. Remember, he actually commits suicide. And on his way to Ephesus, Paul is arrested and he's taken back to Rome where he's imprisoned once again. But this time, remember his first imprisonment, it was like being in an apartment complex, and he kind of had, there were soldiers there that were watching him 24-7, and people could come visit him, and it was kind of like the high life. It was, wasn't so bad. But now, it's not the same. There was actually a Roman prison called Mamertine Dungeon, and this is where he was. Now, flip through. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you can go back. Go back one. Look, there's a little icon there, and that's Mr. Tyner. He's literally in Rome, Rome right now, with Big John and a few other people from around here. Now, now, now go to the next one. They're literally at this hotel right up here, and they're one mile away from the Mamertine prison that Paul was in. I tried to get him to go there this morning and, like, get down in the dungeon, because you can go to the dungeon, show him that next, that this is the actual dungeon that Paul was in. Like, it's down below, and it's nothing like the apartment life that he had in the first imprisonment. But no, Keith had to go get ice cream this morning, so he couldn't, couldn't video us. I said, I'll let him know that you're not going to prison this morning, so uh, Keith's not in prison. But here's what's so fascinating about this, that Paul's in, in prison. He, tw- 25%, a fourth of his apostolic ministry is spent in prison. I mean, you think about that. That's a long time that he spent years in there. And although he can receive visitors, it was very difficult to locate him because he's in this dungeon. They didn't know where he was. It wasn't like he could go out and communicate. But get this, they, they figured it out. Onesiphorus was one of the first ones to find him in prison. And we know that because we can go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. It says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So all of his family, like Tychicus, Demas, Titus, they all came and visited Paul while he's in this dungeon prison. He literally had people that would comfort him while he's in the midst of this. Now, noting that war is on the horizon for the Jews. The Romans are moving in and there's, there's a bunch of uh, just chaos that's going on and surrounding, and, and they kind of know what's going on. The Jews know that the Romans are coming after them. 
So then they start to disperse their church in the Palestinian, the Israel area, and they start to migrate to churches in Asia Minor. Go back, um, go back a couple maps, and I'll show you exactly one more right there. So uh, in this area right here where uh, Ephesus and Galatia and all that, they leave the Palestinian area, and they start going up here just to avoid the chaos of the Roman Empire that's like coming in. Um, and we know this because among them it talks about Philip and his four daughters, and they've actually found the tomb of Philip in this area, the Philip and his four daughters, so we know that he's escaped to there as well. And then now we're talking about John, the apostle. He's in Ephesus. John, the apostle, he's one of the disciples. He's one that hung out with Jesus during Jesus' public ministry, whether it was like three or four years. When Paul's in prison, John the Apostle comes to Ephesus and he joins Timothy. He hangs out with Timothy. And John sends some of his co-workers to minister to the churches there in Asia Minor. And one of these churches, there was a, get this, a self-appointed demagogue demagogue named Diotrephus, and he rejected John's ministry. Now, if you reject John's ministry, you're rejecting Jesus, because John was all about Jesus. And this is where we begin to get the term antichrist, that he's against Christ. And this is what John and Peter and Paul are all up against is this mindset that's coming in to this community of churches that believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Diatrif's lust to have first place in the church is so extreme that he accuses John with wicked words and excommunicates him from the church. John, who's like one of the guys who hung out with Jesus, is now excommunicated from the church. And the heresy that comes in, the heresy that comes in and begins to like filter through the church is this, there's this liberty of license to sin. That literally, you've heard me say this, you can do whatever you want. Like, when Jesus died on the cross, he freed us from the law. The law was crucified with Christ. And literally, you can do whatever you want. You're free. That's because he's put a new heart in you. He's put a new way of thinking in you. He's made you a new creation. He's made you holy. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. And when you understand that, you want to do the things of Christ. Not the things of your own of your flesh that you've done in the past. And so you take a risk by saying there's freedom in Christ. You get it, right? You can do whatever you want, but to want to's changed. And so now, now they've literally taken this heresy and say, "Hey, sin doesn't matter. You just go out and do whatever you want." The whole liberty and we get accused of that too when we teach here. Go up to Rusty's church, you can do whatever you want up there. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I deal with more sin junk right now than I've ever dealt with in my ministry before. Because in other places, I'm not going to say it, in other places, 
They don't talk about their sin and their issues. Here, it all comes out. And it's because we all do it. We all, like, walk in our flesh occasionally. Look, I wore this shirt for a reason. I I get it. You're going to blow it. I'm going to blow it. But it's over. It's 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 a done deal. It's a done deal. But this is what's going on. The, the false prophets that are coming in and they're antichrist, they've left the churches and they've undermined the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've literally taken everything that Paul's done, Peter's done, and John's done, and they've thrown it out. But they're still in contact with the believers. They're still going to the gatherings that the church is having and they're giving this deviant gospel of a message to these people and the people are buying it. Uh, Literally, this is what they're teaching. The material world of matter, the material world of matter is evil. Therefore, if that's the truth, when Jesus came, he couldn't be associated with evil. Therefore, his incarnate human body, his flesh, wasn't real. It just seemed like it was real. It just seemed like you could touch him. It just seemed like he ate with you. But it wasn't real. Now, this is where Gnosticism comes in. And Gnostics believe that Jesus wasn't really human. This is the teaching that is like filtering through the church at this point and going all throughout it. There's this this doctrine of Docetism that's literally saying Jesus wasn't human. That's what's going on. They didn't believe that he came in the flesh and honestly that Jesus wasn't the son of God. And since salvation means deliverance from the physical world, including the physical body, it doesn't matter how a person behaves in their bodies. We can do whatever we want. I mean, This is total heresy to what John, Peter, Paul were teaching. Since sin is part of the material world, sin doesn't exist for Christians. This is like teaching sinless perfection. Let me tell you right now, I get accused of teaching sinless perfection because I'm forgiven. I'm completely forgiven. And I have the freedom to do whatever I want. But let me tell you something. I still sin. And all sin is, is me choosing to walk by my flesh. It doesn't matter what it looks like. The basis of sin is me choosing to walk by my flesh. Literally, if I'm teaching the word of God today in my own strength, that's flesh and that's sin. If I'm trusting the spirit, Lord, I need you to speak today. I need you to teach today. Lord, I'm going to walk by your spirit today. That's what matters. If I'm teaching out of my flesh, you're in trouble. If I'm just teaching my opinions and my thoughts and everything else, you're in trouble. So as a consequence of embracing this false gospel, some of the brethren are exhibiting hatred towards one another. There's a lot of chaos going on in this world. And others claiming they've never sinned and that sin doesn't exist. So now it's 65 A.D., John, John the disciple, John the apostle is in Ephesus. 
And this is when he writes his gospel, the book of John. Not 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, but the actual book. And he's literally writing, Christ is life. Christ is light and love. Of all the things he's teaching, he's teaching that Jesus is love. And then he does begin to write to this group, this group that is like heresies being filtered in, and he tries to explain it to them. Now, I've told this story before, but I was born in uh, Dallas, Texas. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And as a child, I was not a baseball fan. I hated baseball. I loved the NFL football. I was all about NFL football. I was all about Dallas Cowboys. And I could, I could tell you their roster all the way from, you know, uh, Roger Staubach to Drew Pearson and Robert Newhouse and Preston Pearson and Rayfield Wright and Larry Cole. And I can just go on and on and on about this. I, as a kid, I loved it. So I, gra- I graduated from Oklahoma Baptist University. I married Michelle. We moved to Dallas, Texas, and I went to seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And I lived in Dallas, Texas. So I commuted over there 57 miles one way every day to, to yeah, and then I would stop in between after school and I would go to the Rangers batting practice. That's when I became a baseball fan. But I'm still a Cowboys fan at heart. So I'm interning at this church in Dallas. At the point at that point is 1987, 88 and uh they got a $5 million budget. It's a huge church, Park Cities, you know, it's right there at Highland Park area, one of the wealthiest places in the country. And I'm on staff as a rec intern. I'm passing out balls and skates to the kids and going to seminary. And one day, the pastor secretary calls down to the recreation office and she says, is Rusty there? And I'm like, yeah, I'm right here. She goes, can you come down to the pastor's office? You mean Dr. Pleitz's office? Yes, just come down to the office. I'm like, how does he even know my name? I'm just an intern, rec intern. And it's a long walk. It's like going to the principal's office. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what did I do? What did I do? And I I get to the secretary's office, and she says, you can go on in. And my heart is just like pounding, just like, uh, it's even pounding right now, me thinking about it. And I walk in, and you wouldn't believe who's standing there. Dr. Pleitz is standing there with Coach Tom Landry. He says, Rusty, I know you're a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. I want to meet my friend, Coach Tom Landry. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. He had red hair back then. Uh, He's about 150 pounds lighter. I was newly married, you know. It didn't happen until after I was married. But Dr. Pleitz is on the right, and he was the pastor, and uh, Coach Tom Landry, they're both with Jesus now. But that was like one of the best days of my life, meeting Coach Landry. It's like as a kid, you got to meet your hero, the guy in the hat that stood on the sideline. Now, if John, if John is trying if John is trying to communicate about Jesus just like I just communicated seeing my hero for the first time what does that look like John how do you 
How do you tell people, I hung out with Jesus for three years. My heart, as I talk about Jesus, this is John. He writes this in 1 John. Watch this. He says, he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. The chaos, the heresy, the sinning, all that stuff. He's like, what was from the beginning? He says, the very first day, the very first day, what we have heard with our own ears, with our own ears, what we have seen with our our own eyes, and what we have observed, have touched, I've verified this with with our own hands, with our own hands, concerning the word of life, that life was revealed before our very eyes. We got to see this, and we have seen it. We saw it happen, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. He is using every sensory description that he can to say, this is for real. On Wednesday nights, I hang out with the high school students, and it's just a small group. And if there's anything that I can convince them of, Jesus is real. It's a lot harder for me to convince them than it is for John, who's literally sat there and talked with them and touched them and hugged him and even like laid on him and he's like i i've experienced jesus and and in order to have fellowship with god to be saved this concept had to be received he is for real this means that john was speaking really to a group of mixed mixed people in the room he had gnostics and he i'm taking this out He had Gnostics and he had believers in the same room. People go, well, who did he write 1 John to? I don't care who he wrote it to because you had a mixed audience in the group. You had those that believed in Jesus and you had those that were Gnostics that I really would say they didn't have salvation at the time. So you had both believers and non-believers in the room. It could be the same case here today in this very room. I don't know. But this is who he's writing to. He says that we in the passage, that we in the passage is literally talking about whoever's in the room. What's the audience in the room? You got the Gnostics that are teaching heresy and you got those that believe that Jesus is for real. He says in John 1.14, John wrote this. The word became flesh. The word being Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is the word? It's not this, it's Jesus. It says, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the word made flesh. He is the full expression of God in tangible human form, touchable. You can touch him. He's there. He was for real. This physicality of Jesus demonstrates God's compatibility with our humanity that he understands us that he can send his son in the same form that we're sitting in here today verse 3 it says what we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us we saw it we heard it we smelled it and now we're telling you so you can experience it too i'm telling you today he's for real 
He's for real. You can experience Jesus today. John's writing these words so that his audience has fellowship with the Christians and the, the apostles, those that are hanging out. And the fellowship, it's also with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Like, it's great that I get to hang out with you, but guess what? I get to hang out with Jesus every day. Amen. Every day. He says, you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are communing with both you and them. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. <laughs> John's motive is simply this. We're having a good time with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father. We're having a great time. We want you to have the same joy. Like, literally, you, you can do the church thing, you can play the religious game, you can do all that, but there's so much greater joy if you just realize that you're redeemed and holy and righteous. Amen. And you just, just be. There's a lot of junk and chaos going on around us. Just be. Just be. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare, we're passing it on to you. God is light, pure light, and there's absolutely no trace of darkness in him. No trace. Jesus, Jesus is the light. John is separating the light from the darkness and consequently the difference between being saved and not being saved. Those in the room. He says there were people in the church who were not actually saved. They appeared to be so. So the Gnostics, for example, the Gnostics, for example, were, were Christian heretics. I, I don't even know if I would use the adjective Christian on that. They're just heretics. Meaning they subscribe to some of the same language present with in the Christian language, but they deviated by rejecting the physicality of Jesus. How, how, how can you do that? If, if Jesus literally died on the cross and his blood was poured out for our sins, how can you deny that he wasn't here physically? It says in John eight twelve, Jesus spoke to, the again, uh, spoke to them again. I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12 same guy that's writing First John is writing this in his gospel. Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. Hello in the room, Gnostics in the room. Let me remind you of what Jesus said. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. We have to have light to see the way. We have to be able to see. And if you're in the darkness, you can't see. And this is what he's saying about the Gnostics. If we say, verse 6, if we say, if we claim, we have fellowship, if we share life with him, and yet we walk or really stumble in the darkness, we're lying through our teeth, and we're not practicing the truth, we're not living what we claim. 
if we walk in the light as he, talking about God himself, is in the light, we have fellowship. We have. There's this experience that you have together with Christ. You share life with one another. And the blood, the sacrifice blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, purges us from all our sin. Those who walk in the light are literally true believers. John's not talking about Christians that are constantly in and out of their fellowship with God. I get it. Look, if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Christ, that He died for your sins, if you believe that, you're a child of God. I don't care how old you are, how old you are, if you believe that, you're a child of God, and there's nothing that can change that. You can grow up and change your mind, but it doesn't change your relationship with God. Once you believed, you're a child of God. I believe that with all my heart. I'm a child of God. So now you've got people, he's not talking about people who like go in and out of salvation. He's literally addressing people who are either permanently in fellowship with God or those who never were in fellowship with God, those Gnostics. You have to understand the context of what he is doing when he's saying all this because you're getting ready to get to a verse that's like stumbled upon by many people in interpretation. Those who are in Christ are perfectly clean by the blood of Christ. (laughs) Those who are in Christ are perfectly clean by the blood of Christ. You're in Christ... You're in Christ, just as like Matt was talking about earlier. You, you're in Christ, and you're cleansed because of what he did 2,000 years ago. He, he didn't do it up until 2023, October 1. He did it for your whole life. However, those who deny the physicality of Jesus and actually reject the blood of Christ which comes from a physical body, they're probably not believers. So he's got both of these people with these mindsets in his room, and here's what he says. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving, fooling ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Like, we we all sin. Even though I'm wholly redeemed and perfect, I'm perfect. That's my soul and my spirit. It has been redeemed because of what Jesus did, not because of what I did. I still occasionally act out of my flesh in that sin. I still sin. If I say that I don't sin, I'm absolutely lying to you. That's just errant nonsense to say that I don't sin. True Christians will never be in denial of the reality of sin. I get it. I don't talk about sin a lot. I posted something this week on Facebook about faith for the first time in a long time, and then I had people like saying, well, what are you saying about sin, that you don't sin anymore? I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I didn't even say sin in the post. So these Gnostics that are in the room, these Gnostics that are in the room, they needed to like confess their sins, like say, we sin." Because they're saying, we don't sin. You just need to admit that you sin. 
That's all John's trying to get him to say is, hey, look, if you deny that you, you don't sin, you, you're crazy because we know that you sin. That's important for you to know, context. Verse 9, he says, on the other hand, if we confess, if we admit, if we admit our sins, he's faithful and righteous. In other words, he's not going to let us down. He's going to be true to himself. He's going to be faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's going to purge, purge us from all wrongdoing even before you were born. Because once you believed in Jesus, once you believed in Jesus, you literally said, help, I need a savior. You were taken back to the cross. You were taken back to the cross and forgiven. I was crucified with Christ, Paul says. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so now I've been crucified with Christ. I died with him. Something in me died. What died? Something in me died when I was crucified. It just wasn't a positional thing. It wasn't that I earned a position. It's like there's something in me that died. That would be the old man. That would be the old sinful nature. It's not natural for me to sin anymore because he made me a new creation. He put a new heart in me. I have a whole different mindset now. I think like Jesus. I have the mind of Christ. So now when I do sin, when I do sin, when I do walk by the flesh, that's not natural for me and it feels weird. People go, well, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit on you. No, it's just like me, like that doesn't line up with who I am. Like if the Holy Spirit's going to convict me, John says, if the Holy Spirit's going to convict me, he's going to convict me of my righteousness. He's not going to condemn me for my sin because he's already dealt with my sin. Oh, man, if the church understood that right there. He's convicted me of my righteousness. Rusty, I died for you. You're holy. I made you a new creation. Walk in the light. Rusty, walk in the light. Yeah, it's just not, it's not natural for me when I sin now. It just doesn't even make sense. But I know it. I don't, I don't need to like, I, I don't need anybody to tell me. I know it because of who I am, who I really am. It, another problem, it, if, if, that, if this is saying that we have to like confess our sins to make our relationship right with God, if it's, it's, if, it, if it's based upon me remembering all that I've done wrong and confessing it, just to have my relationship right, I'm messed up, man, because that ain't happening. I can't remember it all. He's, he's literally saying to the Gnostics in the room, just confess that you're a sinner. Just confess that you sin. Like, <clears throat> I've literally gone through after... Jesus died on the cross and his blood was poured out for our forgiveness. I've literally gone through the New Testament and I've looked at the word confess. I've looked at the word confess. There's confess Jesus as Lord many, many times after Acts chapter 2. But there's only two places where it talks about confessing sins. This is one of them. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses from all unrighteousness. He's, he's telling the Gnostics in the room, 
Just confess that you're a sinner. Okay, and I can also say when I was eight years old, I confessed that I was a sinner. And at that point, he cleansed me from all unrighteousness. One time, he died one time on the cross. He's not like dying, I'm not having to go and ask for forgiveness every night, da-da-da-da-da, of all the things that I'd done that day, and he gets back up on the cross because Hebrews says that he can't. Hebrews seven twenty seven says he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. Romans 6.10 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Yet, I was told, I got to keep asking for forgiveness. I got to keep confessing my sins. So, look, I did. I confessed that I was a sinner when I was eight years old. The only other time that it talks about confession of sin is in James. He says, Confess your sins one to another. It doesn't say to God or Jesus. It says just confess your sins to one another. We do that. Like when I say I've dealt with more sin in this ministry, in this ministry than I've done in past ministries, I mean that because we confess to one another. And there's a reason for that. Because Iron sharpens iron. It makes us stronger. It allows us to be vulnerable with one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to walk, literally walk with one another. So when it comes to confession of sins, it's a done deal. Jesus won. I don't have, I don't have to, you, you keep this in the context, would you? Keep this in context of what's going on in the room. Just admit that you sin and that you believe Jesus is real. He's, he's, what can I, what can I do to convince you that Jesus is real, that he literally walked on this earth and that his blood was poured out physically? What can I do to convince you? He's literally saying to the room, just confess, confess, admit it. And he finishes this, this chapter here. It says, if we say, if we claim we have not sinned, if we have not ever sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you claim that, it only shows off the ignorance of God. You're saying that God's ignorant. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen of Levener and Pinheads, you are the light of the world. God has made you light. In the midst of a dark, dark world, even to this day, people will deny that Jesus was real. You can go over to Israel and you can see and 
the Jews will tell you, the Muslims will tell you, and the Christians will tell you, yeah, Jesus was, yeah, he walked in this area right here. They'll tell you. But yet, but yet, people still don't believe that Jesus is real. I'm telling you, Jesus is real. His blood was poured out. All the prophecies about him before have been fulfilled through Jesus. Like, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he has made us the light of the world. And he did it one time. One time. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. I don't have to ask for it. I've received it. You've given it as a gift. And I thank you for forgiveness, that I live in a state of forgiveness. I walk in a state of forgiveness. I walk. I, I have been made your righteousness. I have been made right with you. And I pray that uh, all the stuff that's going on in this room, that they understand that. They've been made right with God, and that's all that matters. Jesus won. Jesus won. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.